All right. Hey, good morning, Brookstone. Let me try that again. Y'all were still talking to each other. Good morning, Brookstone. Good morning. Awesome to see all of you here today. Thank you for being here and being a part of God's work here at Brookstone. Let me say good morning and welcome to all of you who have assembled over at our Merriman Avenue campus. We're so grateful for the fact that you are there and we get to do ministry in two locations. And here's the good news about our Father, our Heavenly Father. He is omnipresent, right? You know what that means? Omnipresent. It's a good theological word. It means that He's everywhere all the time. He doesn't have to pick and choose where He's at. And so He is present with us here in Weaverville and present with you there on Merriman Avenue. So we're glad that you are there. Uh, worshiping uh, uh, right along with us. Uh, for those of you who have never, ever been to Brookstone before, let me uh, say good morning and welcome to all of you on both campuses. Um, I know you've already been greeted over there at uh, Merriman by Pastor Johnny and, and here by Pastor Jeff, but I always like just take a brief second and just say from my heart on behalf of our entire church family, if you've never been to Brookstone before, thank you for coming. Uh, we count it a privilege that you're here. I mean it when I tell you we've been praying for you and asking the Lord to send you here. And we believe that your presence here today is an answer to prayer for us. And we believe that it can be an answer to prayer in your life as well. And that you're going to encounter uh, and experience the grace of God while you're here today. Uh, speaking of encountering and experiencing the grace of God... Uh, let me encourage you to be in prayer for our community. You know, Tracy and I were out of town over the last couple of weeks and celebrating our, uh, it's even hard for me to say it, I can't even believe it, 35th wedding anniversary. We, we've been married for almost, man, that makes us the old people in the room in some cases, all right? 35 years, we, but we were babies when we got married. I will just say that. She was 13, I was 12, and we... <laughs> Not much older than that, seriously. But anyway, all that aside, we've been away. Um, but, and while we were away, it was just a tragic week here in our community and within our church family. A um, couple of families experienced some really sudden and tragic losses this past week. Families within our church uh, that we're praying for and, and folks are coming around and loving on them, but boy, they're hurting. And, and then, of course, our community experienced a great loss this week. I'm sure most of you are aware of this with the tragic accident uh, and death of two uh, recent graduates of North Buckham High School students who graduated just last year uh, and then the father of one of those students. And uh, uh, none of them were, were part of our church family, but there are a lot of you who are connected with them uh, who know these families. And so we were... We were blessed to be able to host the funeral for one of those students yesterday. Um, and then this coming Friday, we'll be hosting the funeral for uh, the father and son who were killed here as well. Uh, so we're privileged to be able to serve our community in that way. Uh, but we want to do more than just provide a place for them to gather. Uh, we want to, to pray for them and, and make sure that we're lifting them to the Lord. So, so uh, we know that God has grace and healing, doesn't he, for all things. And he uses all things. And so uh, we want to be mindful to be in prayer for them. Well, we need to get into God's Word. And so I'm excited to begin a brand new teaching series with you today. So I want you to open your Bible to two passages, if you will. Um, why don't you turn, first of all, to the book of James. Uh, this is in the New Testament right after the book of Hebrews. So just a few pages in front of Revelation, you'll find James chapter 1. And once you've gotten your Bible open to James chapter 1, put a Bible marker or something to hold that place, and then go to the Old Testament, and we're going to meet in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So James chapter 1 and Ecclesiastes uh, chapter number 12. Hey, while you're finding your place in those two passages, could I encourage you, if you are new to Brookstone and you haven't yet um, taken steps to connect, with us. And by that I mean that you're still in that place where you're asking, you know, is this my church family? I've been attending for a while, but is this where God wants me to settle and serve him? Uh, how do I get connected? How do I, how do I become a part of? How do I join this church? If you're asking those questions, and I hope you are, then we would love for you to be a part of our Engage event coming up this Wednesday. Engage is the path. It's, it's really the, the wide path that gives you that way to know how you can become fully connected and, and engaged in what God is doing here at Brookstone. So if you haven't yet been a part of it, uh, why don't you check the box on your connection tab? 
Uh, you've already got your name on it, I hope, and you're going to put it in the offering plate at the end of the service. You can do this on either campus. Just check the box that says, I'm interested in membership, and it says engage. Just check that box, and that's the way you'll register. And then this Wednesday, June the 5th at 6.30, we'll be gathering here at Weaverville. Uh, I'll be leading that class. My wife, Tracy, will be with us, and I'd love for you just to be here so you can learn about our church and so that we can have the privilege to meet you and, uh, and that you can take those steps to get really connected and fully participating in what God is doing here. I think you'll be glad if you'll do it. And, um, and so fill that out, check that box, and get ready for Wednesday night. All right, well, if you are currently, you have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes 12, would you shout amen? Amen. amen. Let's pray. Lord. It is good for us to be here today. It's good because you have commanded us to assemble together. You have said in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And so much the more as we see the day approaching, but that we ought to encourage and build one another up in the faith. And we can't do that from a distance. We can't do that from far away. We do it when we assemble together and when our lives are connected and joined together. And so it's good for us to be here for the purpose of mutual encouragement, but also for the purpose of worship. We join our voices as one. We lift as one family, one congregation, one assembly, our praise to our one great God. It's, it's a little bit like just a small taste of what heaven will be like when we'll worship you in your presence forever. And so we're grateful for the privilege to worship. And God, we're grateful for the word of God. We don't gather here today and just talk about what men think or philosophy or, or some sort of tradition or heritage, but every week we open the living, infallible, inerrant, inspired word of the living God. This scripture, this book, this word that you have given us to reveal to us who you are and how we can know you and bring glory to you as we serve you in this life. And so God used this assembly and this preacher and this word to bring transformation to all of our lives today. Encourage us and give us grace to be an encouragement to others. And as you do that, we'll give you the praise. And we pray these things with confidence in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody on both campuses shouted out loud together, Amen. Amen. Hey, have you ever played the game? I don't know if it has a name, but this is what I call it anyway. It's the game... What one thing would you need to survive? What one thing would you need to survive? So here's the setup, okay? Um, you're stranded on a desert island. Uh, you can only have one item in order to survive. What one thing would you choose? What is the one thing that you would need in order to survive on a desert island? Now, I've played this game over the years with lots and lots of people, and I've asked the question, and I've heard a lot of answers. And the most spiritual answer I've ever heard was, if I were stranded alone on a desert island, I knew I was going to die there, I would want my Bible. I'm just not that spiritual. I'm thinking more like food and water, you know. But it's, that's, a, you know that's a good spiritual answer. I want to die with my Bible in my hand, and so that's, that's cool. Somebody once said, if I was stranded alone on a desert island, I'd want my spouse with me. And I didn't know if that was good or bad. Because it could have been, I love you, I want to have my last days with you. It could be, if I'm going down, you're going with me. I'm not sure. But that was the answer they gave. One person, well, I thought this was ingenious. One person once said, um, I would, I'd, I'd want a fruit tree. If I had a fruit tree, right, that would sustain me. I could live if there was like an apple tree or something there. But that's that's pretty good thinking. <laughs> Somebody said one time, I'd want a cow. It's a true story. I want a cow. And I said, why would you want a cow? And they said, because if I had a cow, I'd have meat and milk. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you would only have milk until you had meat. Because <laughs> that's like a total commitment for the cow, right? <laughs> you get meat one time. And then no more milk. Somebody said once, and here's the right answer. If I were stranded alone on a desert island, the one thing I would want in order to survive is a boat. That's ingenious. <laughs> if I had a boat that I could get off of the island. That makes a lot of sense. 
Well, it's a lot of fun. You ought to play that with some people sometime, and you'll learn a lot about the way people think uh, and what they value, really, um, when you play that game. Now, here's the thing. I tell that story because, in a way, in a much more serious way, of course, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon sets up a similar scenario for us. Um, In in this book, uh, Solomon essentially says, we are all on a desert island. We're stranded on a desert island. And the desert island that we're stranded on is the earth. Uh, it's this life that we're, that we're living. He uses these, these words, this life that we're living under the sun. 30 different times he uses that phrase, under the sun, to say we all rise, we all engage in work, we all engage in relationships, we all do what we do under the sun. And he tells us, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he tells us what is the one thing that we need to survive under the sun. The one thing that we must know and do in order to live this life as we should under the sun. After 12 chapters, there's 12 chapters in the book, after 12 chapters... That, that were likely compiled over many years of his life. In fact, I believe that, that the book of Ecclesiastes could even be uh, a part of Solomon's own personal journal as he's sort of journaling his, his way through his life. All through those 12 chapters, he talks about such relevant and vital topics as things like religion and philosophy and war and peace and life and death and love and hate and all of these kinds of deep life issues, tragedy and death. After talking about all of those things, he summarizes it all in the last two verses of the book. These two verses comprise the one thing, the one thing that we must have in order to survive under the sun. Here it is. Verse number 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this, fearing God and keeping his commandments, is the whole duty of man. Or another way to read that is to say, this is the duty of the whole of mankind. Or it's the duty of every Person. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it is evil. What Solomon says is that as we live on this desert island we call planet Earth, that as we're going through our days, the one thing that we need to remember is that God who made the island on which we live and God who made us is worthy of our worship and he demands, he commands us to obey his laws, to obey his commands. This, he says, is the duty of every person because every person is going to be brought into judgment one day. Every person will stand before God and give an account. So if Solomon, the wisest man, by the way, that ever lived, if Solomon said, the one thing you need to know to survive in this life is that you must fear or worship, reverence God and keep his commandments, then wouldn't you agree with me that it's important for us to know what the commandments are, right? We ought to, we ought to seek to understand what, what are those commands that I have been called to know and to obey. And so what we're going to do over five weeks, imagine even the task that I'm beginning, uh, uh, starting to explain to you. Over the next five weeks, we are going to consider five of the most important commands that God ever gave us. Now, you recognize there are four more than five commands, right, uh, in the Bible. And so when, when I say that we are going to deal with five of the most important commands... We recognize that all the commands of God are important, and by recognizing five of them and speaking about five of them over the next five weeks, I'm not in any way minimizing the rest of them, but we had to have some way to say what are the the things that we would say are some of the most important things that God has said to us, and so I've endeavored to do that. And you may ask, well, what was the criteria, what was the method that you used to determine what are the five to survive? What are the the things that matter the most. 
And it may not be the most scientific way of figuring this out, but I simply asked the Lord and, and, and read through the scriptures to find what are the commands where God said things with great emphatic, um, with, with great emphasis when he said these things are vital for your life. Things where he said things like, or places where he said things like, do this or I won't do that. Where he said, everything else is worthless compared to this one thing. Those are the kinds of statements that I was looking for to say, God, what are the really, really vital things we should talk about? Where he said, the greatest of these is, is, is this. Or where he said, do this one thing with everything that is within you. Or where he says, this is what God will accept. And so over the next five weeks, we are going to learn to obey these commands. The command to forgive. Forgive. The command to love God most. The command to not serve money and wealth. The command to love others more than we love ourselves. And the command to be compassionate to those who are hurting. And so today, um, since it is Compassion Sunday, we are going to begin appropriately by talking about this command to compassion. Flip over to James where you're holding that place in your Bible. James chapter number 1. We're going to read one verse, verse number 27. James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled. Here's another way to say it. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you have your pen handy, and I see many of you taking notes today, I want you to circle three words in that verse. In the first part of the, of the verse, circle the word pure. It says pure religion. Circle the word pure. And then circle the word undefiled, pure religion and undefiled. And then at the end of the verse, circle the word unspotted, please. Pure undefiled, and unspotted. Now, all three of these words mean basically the same thing. They're all words that are associated in a way to express the same thought. It, they mean something that is unstained, something that is uh, pure or clean. A word we would use would be uh, virgin, something that is virgin, um, something that is unblemished or something that is authentic, pure, undefiled, and unspotted. Now, James is talking about pure and undefiled religion and keeping our lives unspotted or pure from this stain of worldly living. But one of the things that becomes readily apparent is that these three words, pure, unspotted, unblemished, all reflect the nature and the character of God himself. I think you would agree with me, wouldn't you? God is pure, right? God is unspotted. God is unblemished. There is, there is nothing impure in the character or the nature of God. There's nothing that's inauthentic about him or no blemishes are upon his character, He's absolutely perfect in his holiness. In fact, the Bible says this so many times. Consider Exodus 15, verse 11, which asks the question, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? All the, all the supposed gods that the world would worship. Uh, Moses writes, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among these gods? Who is like thee? What other god could we say is glorious in holiness? Now Moses knew something about the other gods of the world, the gods of the Egyptians, for example. He knew about this pagan worship of other cultures, other peoples. And he said, among all of the gods that other people worship, none of them can compare to you. They're all manufactured by hands, but you 
are the creator and you are glorious in your holiness. So when James writes to us about this pure and undefiled religion and and keeping ourselves pure and unspotted from the world, what he's saying is align yourself. Your life should align with what the character or the nature of God is like. In other words, if I'm a follower of Christ, my life shouldn't look like this while God looks like this. My life, by his grace, should be becoming more and more and more and more in line with the nature and the character of God. Pure religion, James says, undefiled, is that we would visit the uh, widows and the orphans in their affliction and that we would keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, this purity of God that's being transferred to us, James is saying that, that who God is ought to be being transferred to us, it's being transferred how? How does God transfer that purity, that, that unblemished life, that, that more pure life? How does he transfer that nature to us? Well, he does it primarily through, once we come to faith in Jesus, he does it primarily through the word of God and the spirit of God bringing our lives into alignment with his word. So God is pure and then God's word is pure. If you believe that, shout amen, right? So God is perfect and God has given us a pure and unblemished word. Psalm 19 in verse number eight says, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And remember Ecclesiastes 12, 13, where we, where we began. The, the one thing that we need to know is that God wants us to know him, to worship him, to obey him, bringing ourselves into alignment with him. And the way that he does that is by transferring his character to us through the spirit of God or by the spirit of God working through the word of God and among the people of God and our discipleship of one another. This is the process of sanctification. So here's the equation. Hang with me. Here's the equation. God, who is perfect and right and um, uh, pure and unblemished, and unpolluted. This is who God is. Now, he gives us his pure and unspotted word so that that, those two things together by the Spirit might cause us, might result in our becoming more and more like him. Simply put, God is serious. Listen carefully. God is serious about the virtue of of our faith. He's serious when he says that if you belong to me, your life should be becoming more pure. Your life should be becoming more like I am, unblemished, unspotted. Uh, These descriptors that James gives us in chapter 1 and verse number 27. Here's the question. This really is the question in in the book of James. Is your faith authentic? Is is your religion, as verse 27 uh, words it, is your religion authentic? Is it pure or is it dead? This really is the question that James asks all the way through his book. Now, by the way, I should tell you that we see this all the time, all the time. People who say, I am a follower of Jesus, and yet their life is so relentlessly impure, so continually resisting any process of discipleship to bring them into alignment with the character of God, that it causes anyone making an honest assessment to say, I hear what you're saying, but there's no evidence of that in your life. It's, it's sort of like a bottle of water. You know, um, we bring, uh, we, we carry bottles of water with us. And, and so this, the, the label on this water says that this is pure spring water, crystal clear. And the label on this bottle says the same thing. The labels are exactly the same. 
But before I would drink one of these bottles, I would make a visual assessment. I'm not going to depend on the label. If y'all are with me, say amen. I'm not simply going to say, well, it says it's pure spring water. I'm just going to drink it up. Because I have enough sense to know that what's going on in the bottle ought to in some way correlate with what the label says is actually in the bottle. We see this all the time. People who say, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet, there's no... There's no veracity to the claim. There's no truth behind it. There's no evidence of it. I'm not saying that perfection for any of us is is attainable in this life. It's not. And while there's there's no perfect bottle of water, and every bottle of water, there's some impurity. There's no perfect bottle of water. We're wise to assess the water before we drink it. And in the same way, there's no perfect life on this planet. But we ought to assess our lives on the basis of, of what God's word says about us, not simply what we say about ourselves. This is the whole issue in the book of James. James is saying, if your life is not growing in purity, then, then your faith is dead. And really, he says this. Look at chapter number one, and ver- or, I'm sorry, chapter two of James and verse number 17. He says, even so faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Being alone, faith ought to have some some progressive sanctification, some works going on. Look at verse number 20. He says, but will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Again, the same thing in verse number 26. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead. So the point is simply to say, James wants us to know that that God has called us in his holiness by giving us his holy word that we are to align, our lives are to be discipled and sanctified to align with his life. And that that alignment is the evidence of a pure religion, of a true, authentic faith. And that measure, according to James 1.27, that measure of our faith is at least in part, and this is not the whole the whole shooting match, but at least in part that faith expression, the authenticity of our faith can be measured by our attitudes toward and our actions on behalf of, or our inaction on behalf of those who are hurting among us. Look at it again, verse number 27. Pure religion, religion that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows, the hurting to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So let me ask you a question. Can you say that you hear the command of God to live with compassion for those who are hurting? Do you sense a spirit-enabled, a spirit-empowered compassion for those who are hurting? Well, let's, let's talk about it for just a minute. James says in chapter 1 and verse number 27, write this down, that pure religion, pure and undefiled religion, uh, feels, write it down, it feels with the Father's heart. Pure religion uh, feels in our heart what the Father feels in his heart. Um, in, in verse number 27, he says, pure religion undefiled before God. In other words, the word before means faith, our faith, our religion, that is enabled or that is invited to stand before God. That's what the word before means. It means to be allowed to be in the presence of what will stand in his presence is a faith that feels with the heart that he feels with. Specifically in verse 27, for those who are Hurting. Um, you can tell a lot about a person, can't you, by what or who they defend. You, you really can. You can know a lot about the heart of a person if they're a defender of the weak, if they're a, a lifter up of the head, if, if they're someone who's uh, lifting up and encouraging and helping those who are hurting. 
And when we consider the heart of God, he is a defender. He is for. His heart is toward those who are hurting. Specifically, verse 27, he mentions widows and orphans. Now, sadly, our hearts often are more aligned with or seek to be in favor with not those who are poor, widows and orphans, but those who are wealthy, those who can maybe do something for us. Look at chapter number two. He, he fleshes this out a little bit in the, in the congregation. He says in chapter two, verse one, my brothers, do not hold on to this faith that you have in Jesus, who's the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there comes into your assembly, into your church, a man wearing a gold ring, who's wearing a goodly expensive apparel, and there also comes into your congregation a poor man in vile, dirty, tattered clothing. If you have respect unto him, or if you show partiality unto him, who wears the, the happy, the gay clothing, the, the bright clothing, and you say unto him, sit here in the good place. And then you say to the poor, you stand over there or sit there under my footstool. Are you not partial in yourselves and you have become judges of people with evil thoughts? That is that you're beginning to make distinctions among people. Look at verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Verse 6, but you have despised the poor. So what James says is too often, this is what we do. We, we, we look at people and we assess them and we tend to shift toward those who maybe are a little more like us, those who maybe are even a little ahead of us uh, economically or financially or socially where they're placed and they can, can kind of help us. And then we see the poor and we look away from them. He says, when you do this, are you not making distinctions on the value of people based upon what they have or they don't have. They're worth based on whether they're wealthy or whether they're poor. So here's the thing. God's heart is impartial. Amen? Doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, if we're rich or poor, his heart is impartial. He, in fact, not only is he impartial and receiving of all of us by his grace, but he's, he moves even toward those who are the weaker, the least among us, because he defends their cause. Scripture says this so many times. I really would love for you to turn with me. I thought about putting these on the screen today, but I thought, no, I want you to turn and mark them in your Bible. Why don't you turn back to Deuteronomy, a wonderful passage to, to reveal to us the heart of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse number 17. So you'll find Deuteronomy, if you're new to your Bible, near the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of your Bible. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. Listen to what he says. He says, for the Lord your God is a God of gods. He is Lord of lords, a great God, mighty and awesome. He does not regard persons nor takes reward. It means he cannot be bought or he cannot be bribed. He executes the judgment of the fatherless and the widows he loves the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Now, here's the description in Deuteronomy 10 of the character of our God. He says, look, he loves, he loves us all, but know this, he is going to, to do what's right. He's going to protect the interests of the, the poor, the widows and the orphans, the fatherless. He's going to their defense, the stranger among us, the homeless, if you will. He's going to run to their defense. And he is going to show kindness to them. And then here's the command in verse number 19. Therefore, you love the stranger. Therefore, you have compassion on the weak. Therefore, you defend the orphans and the widows because this is what your God does. Do that because you once were strangers in the land of Egypt. I love that motivation. He says, you should have the heart of God to lift up the hurting because what did God do for you? He lifted you up out of your lostness, out of your slavery. He says, this is who our God is. Turn over to the book of Psalms, chapter number 68. We're heading back to the New Testament, but just stop by Psalm 68. 
in, in the middle of your Bible. Listen to this wonderful passage, Psalm 68, verse number 5. Well, actually, verses 4 and 5. Mark these verses. He says, sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rides upon the heavens, extol him by his name, Yah, or Yahweh, and rejoice before him, a father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows is God in his holy habitation. I love this because these two verses say that we ought to extol the glory of our God because he's majestic. He's the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords. He, he, he is above all majestic in the heavens and yet from that exalted place, he is the defender of the poor. He's the lifter of the fatherless and of the widows. So here's what, the, here's what the scripture would say to us over and over again, not just in these two passages. That if we are going to have our faith being refined and becoming more and more pure, as James says, pure and undefiled, part of the way we measure that sanctification process is as our hearts are beginning to feel for the fatherless and the widows and the orphans and the hurting and the poor, the way that God feels for them that we're beginning to share in God's heart. On your way back to James, go all the way back to the book of James, but I want you to pass it and go to 1 John. Let me read you one other verse there. Right after James, you'll come to 1st, 2nd Peter, and then you'll be in 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. What does it mean when the scripture says that this is the heart of God, that he has a heart for the orphans, a heart for the widows, a heart for the hurting and the poor? And I ought to share that heart because that is going to be pure religion and undefiled. I'm going to begin to have this heart for them like God has. What does that mean? Well, look at 1 John 3 and verse number 17. Well, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God. This is how we know God loved us. Because he laid down his life for us. He didn't just say, I love you. He came and sacrificed for us. Verse 17. But who has, whosoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes up his bowels of compassion, or that is his heart of compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? Man, it's a heavy question. He says, if you, if God has given to us the, the good of this world and None of us could argue God has given to all of us a, a vast measure of the good of this world. He says, if you have this from God, and then you see someone, a brother or sister who's hurting, and, and you close up your heart of compassion, how can you say that the love of God dwells in you? Because when I'm becoming more like him, my heart does not close, my heart opens to them. If you're with me, shout amen. Back to James 1 and 27. This is what James is saying. That this process of, the, of the, the righteousness and the holiness and the impurity and the undefiled character of God is being transferred to us by his pure commands that, that Solomon says this is our whole duty is to know and keep his commands. And as we know and keep his commands, then the nature of God is being transferred to us through those commands and through the spirit of God within us. And that's going to bring our hearts into alignment with his heart to feel with the Father's heart. Simply put, the principle is that evidence of a person's growing sanctification is that we're beginning to feel like God feels toward the hurting. Now, I want you to know that at Brookstone, we are taking this seriously. I like to think that we always have, but we're a church just like a person is always being sanctified and growing in our faith walk. And in these days, this year, as we're moving forward, we are taking this more seriously than we ever have. And so we're committed to investing our hearts, our lives, our ministry into the lives of hurting children specifically, orphans, if you will. We're doing that in a number of different ways. We work with local agencies to assist unwed mothers. A couple of weeks ago, we finished up our... our uh, 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 what we call it, it's a baby shower for these agencies that where we brought in uh, diapers and all sorts of things that these new moms would need to take care of their children. That's a ministry to, the, to those hurting 
uh, young women and their babies. Uh, we're working with those who uh, and supporting those who work to uh, prevent abortions. Uh, by the way, uh, who is not who is an orphan? If a child about to be aborted is not an orphan, an unwanted child is an, is an orphan. If anyone is, and how can the Church of Christ close our eyes to the scourge of abortion in our in our nation? And so we must, and we are committed to being involved in in stopping uh, abortions. And by the way, along those lines, this is not part of the message, but let me just stop and say, I fully stand in alignment and agreement and celebrate, and pray God North Carolina will do the same, although it doesn't currently seem that we're on that track, but thank God for states that are raising the bar against abortion in order to force it back into the courts that our nation might make a turn that we ought to make. Praise God for that. But we're, we're... praying with that and we're working with these agencies. We're working with the Black Mountain Children's Home. Some of you are, have been taking classes to become foster parents and we have a foster care helps ministry. And then, as you know, in these days, we're engaging in a project together in, in Rwanda in the village of Bigogwe. This is the Brookstone Project in Bigogwe. It is our project with Compassion International. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Bigogwe is a village in the northern, northern regions of Rwanda, a tiny little place in the mountains. 4,000 people live in Bigogwe. These families live in houses with mud walls and dirt floors, uh, corrugated metal roofing on most of them. Their diet, for the people who live in Bigogwe, their diet consists primarily of of beans and cabbage and potatoes and bananas. That's what they eat to survive on. The average income in Bagogway for a family is $25 per month. Average. And there are 250 children that Compassion International has identified as living in Bagogway who are in desperate need of adoption by American families. Families in America who have received the good that God has given us, who would adopt a child. I don't simply mean send a little money every month. That's part of it, but it's more than that. It's, a, it's adopting them without bringing them into your home, knowing their name, seeing their picture, praying for them as you pray for your own children, sending them birthday gifts, sending them, them cards, encouraging them. And then sharing the gospel with them, 250 children. And we have asked Compassion International to let us have all 250 of them. We will plan in the coming months, the coming years, I should say, to take mission trips so that we can go and not just love them from a distance, but so that we can load up a, an airplane, load up a bus, and we can go and, and serve in that community and meet the children who God attaches our hearts Evidence that we are becoming people who are being made unblemished and more pure as God is, is that our heart begins to feel for the orphans like his does. Now, the second thing that James would teach us then that, we, that comes with that is that when we begin to feel like he feels, then James would say in, in chapter 1, verse 27, that pure religion then begins to see with the Father's eyes. We don't just feel it in our hearts. We begin to look at what's really going on. Chapter 1, verse number 27, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit, circle that word visit, it is to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. When our hearts begin to come into alignment with God's heart and we begin to feel for the orphans the way he does, then we begin to look deeply to take a good long look at what their plight is. The word visit means to to inspect it means to look at. It's, it's a word which means to have over an overview of, to truly understand, to discern fully, and then to relieve, to relieve the suffering that we see. It's the word that Jesus used in Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse. When he's talking about the judgment of the nations, and he says, um, God, uh, he says, bless uh, those of you who were faithful to me. And this is what you did for me. 
Remember what he said? He said, I was, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Then he said this, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And that's the word. It's the same word visited. You, you came and relieved my suffering. And they said, well, when did we do that? And he said, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. You see, when our hearts begin to come into alignment with God's heart with regard to the orphans, then we begin to open our eyes and we begin to see there are hurting children in this world who need the hope of the gospel. And so we begin to see it. And then third and finally, once our hearts are coming to alignment and then we open our eyes and we see these children who God loves so dearly. And the third thing that James would say that we do is that pure religion then helps with the Father's hand. So we don't just have his heart. Oh, yes, God bless them. We don't just see it. Oh, that's awful. And we do something. We, we help them. We work with the Father's hands. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this really gets to the, to the heart of, of the message of the book of James. Is my faith authentic? Well, if it's authentic, it's going to be obvious in the way that I see and feel for and engage with and help those that God loves so dearly, those widows and those orphans. In fact, look at what he says about this. James chapter 2, verse number 14. He says in that verse, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith and doesn't have works? If a man says that he's a follower of Jesus, but the evidence of his life is a heart that is closed to the needs of others? Is the evidence of what I see contradicting what the label that he wears says? This is the question James asks. Get again verse 14. What does it profit, my brother, if a man says he has faith and he doesn't have works? Can faith save him? And then he illustrates it. If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto that naked and hungry person, that naked and hungry child, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them those things which are needful for the body. What good is it? It's a pretty apt illustration. If I say I have faith and there's no evidence of that, then, then can my faith really be true, authentic? And if I see someone who is hungry and needy, and I say, God bless you, I pray things will be better for you. That's really pitiful that you're in that situation. May the Lord bless you and help you. And yet... I walk away, heart closed, hands in my pocket, and I don't help with the Father's hands. Then he says, what good is it? I want you to hear me today, church. The heart of God is for the orphan. The heart of God is for the hurting. The heart of God is for the widow. And in Bagogwe, Rwanda, there are these 250 children who are waiting for people who know Christ and who have been given the good of this world, people who will come and help them. I'm asking you today to share in God's heart and to help these kids. I'm asking you to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. We must first feel, and then we must see, and then by God's grace, we must help. And so I'm asking you, I'm boldly asking you, I, I'm not even being uh, timid or ashamed about it, I'm asking you, would you consider adopting a child? It's $38 a month to do it, and I have to tell you, for most of us, for most of us, I know it's not true for everybody, but for most of us, $38 a month, it's $1.25 a day, we, don't even, we, we, we throw away $1.25 a day and don't even know how we do it. I mentioned that the average income in uh, Rwanda is $25 a month. The average income, and we're asking for $1.25 a day to support them. The average income in America per household is about $150 a day. On average, $150 a day. So on average, what we would be saying is, could, instead of living on $150 a day, could I live on $148.75? No, I never was good at math every day. In other words, God has given me so much good. 
Can I help others? Now, some of you may say, you know what, honestly, pastor, I'm just glad to know about the need because for, for our family to, to do $38 a month, that's the easy part. Man, now I, I want to do the hard part, which is getting engaged with their lives emotionally and spiritually and loving them and, and sending them pictures and being a part of their lives. That's the hard part, 38 bucks a month. For most of us, not a big deal. But if it is, listen, listen to what, I'm, I'm just going to read it, you don't have to turn, but listen to what Moses says, how God commands his people to make provision for widows and orphans. I mean, I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 24 and verse number 17. He says, Do not pervert the judgment of the stranger nor the fatherless. Do not take a widow's raiment for pledge. Verse 17 is this, Take care of those who hurt, because God says, My heart is for them. So, so make sure that they're being provided for. Now, verse 18. But you shall remember that you were a bondman, a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, here's what I am commanding you to do. If you have been redeemed by God's grace, here is my command, Moses would say. When you cut down your harvest in your field and you left some sheaves in the field, do not go and get those. Those are for the stranger and the orphans and the widows. Leave a little bit. Verse number 19, or verse 20. When you shake your olive tree and the olives fall and you harvest the olives, do not go and shake the tree again. Don't strip the boughs of every olive. Those olives that remain, they're for the orphans and the widows and the strangers. What's the command? Leave a little bit. Verse 21. When you gather your grapes out of the vineyard, you shall not glean every grape, but you leave some for the orphans and the widows and the strangers. The command in verse, 18, or verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21 is this. Leave a little bit for those who are hurting. And this is our challenge. That can we say, in all of the good things and blessing that God has given us, is it possible for us to leave just a little bit for one little orphan in a village called Bagagwe so that for a buck and a quarter a day, I can make sure that kid's got food and clothes and education and he hears the gospel and he's being discipled. I believe in Brookstone Church and I believe that you have pure and undefiled faith and that God is bringing our hearts into alignment. And I hope you will take advantage of this opportunity today. I want to pray for us.